So the talk, the sex talk. Just gather around. Just be like at home when your parents had the sex talk with you. Or did they have the sex talk with you? Who had it with you if there was a sex talk? My mom had it with me. Dad stayed out of it. I knew all the basics, though. I was 21. (laughs) (laughs) Denise and I both had the talk with our boys. Uh, They were probably 10 or 11, somewhere around there. And we took them to an Italian restaurant. We wanted to try to create a romantic mood <laughs> for them, show that it's more than just a, a physical act, I guess. But sex is a tough topic. I don't know why it's a tough topic. We're here because of sex. Uh, not one person is here because uh, any other reason. Somebody in your past had sex, and here you are. <laughs> so we need to be able to talk about it sometime. These parents uh, talk about their experience of talking about it. Just had to talk with my youngest son, and I got some pretty good pointers. <laughs> yeah. Me, giving the son the birds and bees talk. A son, do we have to do this now? The barber, looking up from cutting son's hair, and is that even accurate? <laughs> we, we, we do need to kind of be careful about the time and place that we have that talk, I suppose. My six-year-old, where do babies come from? Me, vaginas. A six-year-old, I hate being human. (laughs) Well, kudos for the mom for actually using the word vagina. My question to you is, how many of y'all got a little uncomfortable when I said the word vagina? I won't say it anymore. That'll be it. But the fact that we might have had some discomfort, I think, speaks to some of the problems, the hang-ups that we do have. One thing we do need to do with our kids when we talk to them is, Go ahead and use the right language. You don't need to use all the pee-pees and all that stuff. Just call it a dick if you want to. I don't know what, or a penis, whatever you want to call it. But uh, right language is usually a a better way to go about that. But we really do get discomfort. And because we are uncomfortable about it, uh, we don't talk about it very much. I asked on my Facebook page this past week two questions. What did your church teach you about sex, and what did your parents teach? teach you about sex, and there was this theme, nothing, sex was not a word we spoke about, oh, you just don't speak of that stuff, and not much, and then there were those who were taught something about sex from their church and from their parents, and and they were things like this, the church taught me that I can't have sex because I'm a gay man, and that's the worst sin, being gay, somebody else said I was taught it was a taboo topic, shared only between man and woman, not to be done before marriage. It's the woman's duty to her husband, and she should never refuse it. Yeah, that that was a common lesson in the evangelical church anyway. We were taught that women didn't like it. They just had to do it. Men desired it, and uh, it was women's duty to do it. And that's a sad, sad thing. Uh, On and on, this person went, if you are not a virgin... On the day of your marriage, you are tainted and not worthy of marriage. It's a sin to have sexual thoughts about something even before marriage. One other person said that she was taught that my purity was my value and my body belonged to my future husband. And so much of the self-esteem was tied up in how you took care of your uh, sexual self. 
and uh, a lot of broken people are here because of that particular teaching. Somebody else wrote, church taught me it was sinful and everything should be saved from my husband. Very heavy in purity culture. And this uh, person took kind of a different take on it. It was kind of refreshing. My mom was very open. She described it in very positive terms and that it was absolutely amazing when with someone you love. Actually, she frequently talked about the importance of a healthy sex life for a marriage. As a teen, I hated how open she was with me. <laughs> but now I realize the wisdom. Now the church, on the other hand, I went to church camp where they had every teen go to the front and sign purity pledges. I brought it home and my mom ripped mine up. <laughs> she was a strong Christian who loved God, but she was outraged that I was forced into something as a young teen. In the very cringe words of my mom, when you fall in love, your mind and body is going to want to feel as close as possible to that other person. I don't want you feeling guilt if you can't wait or like you lied to God. We're tearing this up. You're 14. At 17 and in love, things will be a whole lot different. Your body is going to have a lot of strong feelings, and it's normal. You are too young to make this decision before those feelings have really come alive for you. Uh, that's uh, some wise counsel from that woman in that, in that era. You may or may not agree with it. You may feel more like uh, some of the earlier uh, expressions. But this person and the person before mentioned this purity culture. And if you didn't, weren't raised in an evangelical church, purity culture may be kind of a foreign concept to you. Purity culture was a movement that peaked in the 1990s, but it stretches back decades. Denise and I experienced the purity culture teaching without it being called purity culture. And it really, I think, started back in the 70s as a reaction to the free love of the 60s and to the rise of feminism because we had to keep women in their place. And so a lot of the purity culture focused upon gender uh, conventional gender roles, uh, the man being above the woman and that kind of a thing, and the woman submitting to the man. And the purity culture was also a reaction to the rising movement, which was so health, healthy and helpful, and we're celebrating to, today and all month uh, the rise of, of gay rights. And the purity culture was in some part uh, produced, created, to suppress and oppress that particular thing. And evangelicals, of which I was a part, and even a pastor of the evangelical church that taught purity culture, became very interested in adolescent sexuality and uh, maintaining those gender roles and suppressing uh, gay rights. During my high school years, <clears throat> I attended a seminar <clears throat> about two times then when Denise and I got engaged, we attended one in Dallas. It was called the Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts, led by Bill Gothard. I would like to have a show of hands if you know of that or if you've ever attended that, if I'm preaching to the choir. Anybody at all? Just Denise and me. Somebody else back there? <clears throat> right here in the middle. Well, as I understand the Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts today, I, I see so many cult-like elements of that, and we were very caught up in that. Uh, it was in that seminar in high school that I was taught that kissing 
was about as far as I could go uh, as a youth uh, unless I were engaged or at least married. And uh, really, Bill Gothard recommended that you wait till you married to kiss. And uh, but he allowed, if not that, at least wait until you're engaged. And I kind of I bought into that uh, when I was uh, 17. I'd done plenty of kissing up until that. I felt <laughs> so. After I attended that seminar, I thought, okay, well that makes sense. Uh, if kissing is as far as I could go, I want to say that for somebody pretty special. And so in May of 1980, uh, Denise, I picked up Denise from Tyler, Texas, and we drove to Lake Washita in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And it was on a Saturday afternoon, and we were skiing together. And we both skied toward each other and met in the middle of the wake. And uh, there she kissed me. She just planted a big wet one right on me, right there. <laughs> No, I, uh, we skied to the middle of the lake, or the wake, and I, I reached over and pulled her over a little bit, and I gave her a kiss. And when I gave it, Denise a kiss, she knew, uh-oh, something's going on. Because Denise knew about my promise, and she knew that I was going to save my kiss for a person that I was engaged to. So that was Saturday, in, a Saturday in May 1980, and following Tuesday, I drove back to Tyler. Well, I drove her back to Tyler on Sunday night after church, after I preached. And uh, then I drove to Tyler on Tuesday after leaving Little Rock, and uh, I proposed to her on that Tuesday. So we were engaged. and got married in September. And we've been kissing ever since. <laughs> That's a good thing. But <clears throat> those seminars, <clears throat> Bill Gothard's seminars, were followed by purity culture. And purity culture incorporated a thing called true love weights. That was a Southern Baptist convention thing that was introduced in 1993. And all of those things, Gothard and true love weights and purity culture, all had the goal of helping adolescents, maybe requiring and making adolescents wait until marriage to have sex. And that movement turned into an industry you had purity rings and purity pledges, purity Bibles, uh, purity-themed books. And uh, True Love Waits had a uh, seminar, or, a, or rather a rally in Washington, D.C. on the National Mall. 25,000 teenagers gathered, and they planted in the ground between the uh, Capitol and the Washington Monument 210,000 purity uh, abstinence pledges from 210,000 teenagers across the country. And uh, <clears throat> that was quite a sight to behold. And at that point, 1994, purity had become a cool thing. Miley Cyrus had a purity ring. And uh, Selena Gomez had a purity ring. Demi Lovato and the Jonas Brothers and our own Whitney Esquibel had a purity ring. She's our uh, social media person, and uh, Joey and Whitney, our, Joey's our creative arts guy, they're, they're married. And the point was to wait until, and, until you're married. And uh, there were newspapers. It was such a popular thing that newspapers covered it. And the theme was, I'm going to wait. Teens promised to abstain from sex 
as a part of that growing movement. <clears throat> and honestly, uh, that's not a bad goal at all. I'm not going to fault that goal in the least. And the intentions, although they may have been good, I think the results were very harmful. Uh, and people are still hurting today over that whole culture. And uh, <clears throat> this is why I understand that they're hurting today. I think intentionally or unintentionally, it really doesn't matter. The effect was the same, whether the youth pastors and senior pastors meant to do it or not. The, the, important, the important thing is that the effect was this, that kids, especially girls, and this purity culture was directed mainly toward girls in the youth groups. The message that was given and the message that girls received is that you are damaged goods if you have a sexual thought, if you have sexual intercourse, or if you masturbate before you are married. And those ideas put into the girls' heads were that you are damaged goods, you are not marriage material if you uh, break this covenant and have any kind of a sexual behavior before uh, you get married. One of the persons that responded to my Facebook question says this, when I was in high school, I went to church with some friends for the first time since I was really little. The, pre the preacher held up a priceless action figure still in the box and ripped it out right in front of us. And that's the comparison he made to losing our virginity. As someone who had already lost mine by that point, it sure felt like the church saw me as damaged goods at best. Another person said, the purity ring ceremony was a big deal at our church I went to. I remember some of my friends in the youth group were made to feel so ashamed that they could not participate because they were impure. Shame. Shame has been a really effective weapon used by the church in general if the result is that you're wanting is people at the altar asking forgiveness. It's especially been effective in the purity culture world. It's been a major weapon in that world. Youth pastors and senior pastors alike would frequently dip into the damaged goods metaphors. Piece of gum. Open the, unwrap the gum, pop it in your mouth, and take it out. Does anybody want to chew some gum? The implication is, if you have a sexual thought, if you masturbate, if you have intercourse, any kind of a sexual behavior before you're married, you're just like that used gum. Nobody's going to want you. Scotch tape. If you put the scotch tape on too many things, it loses its ability to bond. It's a warning that if you have sex before marriage, you will lose your ability to bond to your mate. And divorce is more likely to occur. A rose. The youth pastor stands at the front of the group and has his beautiful rose and begins to pluck off petal by petal this sexual experience, that sexual experience, that make-out session, that oral sex, that sex, that sex, that thought. And the lesson being that before 
any of these sexual experiences, you are a beautiful rose. But if you have any of these sexual experiences, look at you. Who's going to want that rose? Does it surprise you that girls, especially girls, left those church services feeling like damaged goods, covered with shame? Does it surprise you that those young girls or young women or middle-aged women now and are still feeling hurt and shame like damaged goods? Second message, especially to the girls, is that you are dangerous. You're scary dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> For all kinds of reasons, right? <laughs> okay. We'll have some coffee later. Yeah. <laughs> Another person on, in response to my Facebook question, at Canicut Camps, I was taught that as a girl, I could be a temptation for boys to have lustful thoughts, and I was not to cause my brother to stumble, so I should avoid any possible perceived immodesty. Well, what happened at Canicut happened in evangelical churches all across the country, especially in the South. And that true story is expressed in this parody that uh, I want to show you from a, a, a TikToker. Take a look. Oh, hey, hey, girl, real, real quick. I know we're about to go to our, our chapel service, but um, uh, one of the guy counselors brought something up to me, and I, I just I had to talk to you about it. Don't worry, you're not in trouble. You're not in trouble. Um, but it's come to my attention that your shorts are a little short. Yeah, I, I get that you're six feet tall, but shorts have to be below the knees. So if you don't have those, then you'll probably need to wear pants because you have you have wonderful, long, beautiful legs. So great. Such a God thing. Um, but the, I've noticed the boys have noticed your legs and, um, you know, they got that thing between their legs and we don't want them to have impure thoughts. And I know we haven't had our purity night yet. That's tomorrow. So you didn't know. Um, but I'm going to need you to wear pants from now on because we don't want you to be a stumbling block for these boys that are being called into mission work. Mm -hmm. I, I know, I know it's 100 degrees outside in Texas, but um, you know, we got to keep their hearts pure. Guys, right? In purity culture, the girls are the gatekeepers to life or to death, to wholeness or to unhappiness. The lesson is that was given is that guys have a hard time controlling themselves and that girls need to help their brothers in Christ out by dressing modestly. There's never anything about guys dressing modestly because we were taught that girls don't have a sex drive. Only guys have the sex drive. Girls operate on the basis of emotion. They just want to be held. Guys operate on other bases. In fact, even as a married couple, Denise and I were taught that uh, women will use sex to get romance. Men will use romance to get sex. And so when Denise and I entered our marriage, I was only 24 and she was 19 that's just the way we did things back then, I guess. And uh, I had the thought that she really wasn't that into sex. 
I was into sex and she wasn't. And that's just girls are more wanting the emotional needs met rather than those other kinds of needs met. Well, the girls were taught through purity culture that because of how they dress, girl, boys might sin. And that when you dress a certain way, men just have no choice but to lust. So much for men being the stronger sex, huh? Yeah. Can you see in that teaching the seeds of victim blaming? Imagine enduring a terrifying sexual attack. You're bruised and you're shaken. And you recount what happened to your preacher. And your preacher responds with the question, what were you wearing? There is at the United Nations, there was at the United Nations an exhibit called What Were You Wearing Exhibit. The exhibit invites visitors and diplomats to observe the outfits worn by victims of sexual assault at the time of their attack. We need to know that what they were wearing did not cause the attack. The attacker caused the attack. Purity culture, I believe, is complicit in creating a culture in which we blame the victim. There is one time in the New Testament where the stumbling block metaphor is used in regard to sexuality. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell or Gehenna, that garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. And then he talks about the fact that don't be a stumbling block. Don't be a stumbling block. But it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't tell us that the woman is the stumbling block or that the woman is the problem or the person who is lusted after is the problem. What Jesus tells us, it is the I that is the problem. It's not the object of vision. It's the vision itself that's the problem. If there's lust going on, the lust does not happen at the fault of the person being lusted after. The lust is to be owned by the viewer, the eyes of the person lusting. Jesus never tells the women to dress modestly. Jesus does say if there's a situation of lust, the problem is the eye. The problem is the objectification of anybody. I want us to understand so very carefully that girls' bodies are not responsible for boys' thoughts. You hear me? If I look at a picture or an image and have a lustful thought, it's not the fault of the image. It's my own fault. 
It's my eyes. It's my thinking. It's my taking my eyes off of the goodness of God and the plan that God has for me and looking somewhere else. It's my fault. Another lesson, and I gave you a little bit of an accidental uh, look at that, a peek at that, that we learned from purity culture is that there was a complete and utter exclusion of LGBTQ+. And I think with so much sadness of how many LGBTQ plus individuals sat in those purity culture classes, hearing the accusation that who they are and what they feel, felt was sinful. Purity cultural culture makes two false assumptions about their audience. First, that everyone is cisgender, identifying with the gender that matches their birth designation. And the second fault that they make is assuming and thinking that everybody out there is heterosexual. Purity culture was a very strong way to oppress and to discriminate against our LGBTQ plus siblings. Another lesson we learned from the Purity culture is what somebody, it's not original with me, calls the sexual prosperity gospel. That simply says, if you hold out, kids, if you wait until marriage to have sex, my gosh, all of your fairy tales will come true. I mean, your wedding night is going to be the 4th of July. And you'll have sizzling sex the rest of your life. Well, it just didn't work out that way. And here's what I have seen to be the problem with that teaching with some people that I've, Denise and I have talked to over the 42 years of marriage. How in the world can you be taught that sex is out of bounds, that it's off limits, don't touch this, that it's disgusting, you stay away from it, it's dangerous, it's damaging, you're going to burn yourself and all these negative metaphors. And then all of a sudden on your wedding night, somebody flips a switch and you immediately begin to think it's the best thing in the world and it's exciting and loving. All of a sudden, you become a nymphomaniac and it's just, it just doesn't happen that way. Our minds aren't made to flip the switch like that. People who practice turning this themselves off over and over again are going to have a hard time turning themselves on in one night. So, what do we do now? Do we just toss out the purity culture stuff and just have sex with whomever and whenever we want? Well, maybe there is a healthier way to have self-control, to be responsible, and to be loving human beings in our sexual behavior. Now, what I propose to you today is instead of a rule-based approach, and especially as you're looking at your own life, and as if you have kids, how to teach your kids about this, maybe instead of a rule-based ethic, I propose a values-based ethic. 
There's so many wise spiritual writings that will help us with that. Some of those are in the Christian scripture where Paul writes, all that you do must be done in love. That just pretty much covers it right there. Every sex act, every sexual thing that you do, it has to be infused with love and all about love. My friends, you were chosen to be free. That means you can, you're free to do whatever you want. Paul writes to the Corinthians that I'm not a, I can do whatever I want. Every, everything is permissible, but I'm not going to allow anything to master me or control me, and I'm going to be wise. So don't, but don't use your freedom as an excuse to do anything you want, but use it as an opportunity to serve each other with love. All the law says can be summed up in the command to love others as much as you love yourself. Yeah, instead of teaching our kids rule, 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 and there are at some age in our kids' life, rules are so very important. But as they get toward puberty and adolescence, I just propose a values-based instead of a rule-based. We talk about love and consent and honor and serving each other. You're free to do whatever you want, but don't use your freedom to hurt yourself or other people. And then Paul kind of sums it up again to the Romans. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, do not commit adultery and don't murder and don't steal and don't covet. If there's any other commandment, just name it, are summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. It's almost like Paul says, okay, you, you can say no kiss until engagement or no hold hand, hand holding until engagement or no this or this or this until engagement or until marriage. And that's what's kind of covered in if there's any other commandment that you want to think of. All the rules that we lay out. One of the rules that mother and dad had for me is <clears throat> I, I couldn't sit in the car with my girlfriend. <laughs> they forgot that I was driving a, a, a VW Beetle with a four-speed manual transmission. There's not a whole lot you could do in a little beetle. And so that's, that's probably a good thing. But we still couldn't do it. And that's not a bad rule for me. I'm, I probably needed that. But I just wonder what my life would have been like if I would have had less hang-ups, if I just would have been taught by mother and dad, if there's any other commandment, just do the loving thing. What's the best way to love yourself and love God? And love, love this person. I don't know. I, I sure like to try it. Be nice to have my life over again, in that in that, in that kind of sense. I totally lost my place. I got so involved with where I was going. So let me just ask you the question, and we'll we'll close after this. Honestly, and you can say no. I I, I wouldn't mind hearing a verbal, yes or no. Do you think that a values-based approach to sexuality would have better benefits than a purity culture-based approach? The majority says yes, but if you, if you feel no, that's okay. I get it. But I sure would like to be a church that with our children... Age appropriate, of course, and with our students once they hit, you know, middle school and high school, 
that we would cooperate with parents and teach this value-based way of sexuality. I, I can't help but wonder where the priorities of the church switched away from purity culture and rules from a preoccupation with and a fear of these sexual sins and to begin to focus on values of love. And if we could lead our kids and ourselves to ask the question, what are the characteristics of gracious and mutual love? What does that look like in sexuality? I think that maybe, just maybe, that would begin to create healthy and whole human beings. That's all I got to say about that. I do want to recommend to parents two books. I bought one and got one from the library, the uh, Springfield Green County Library. The Everybody Book, the LGBTQ Plus Inclusive Guide for Kids about sex, gender, bodies, and families. Love this book. It's for 8-year-old to 12-year-old. This is from 4 to about 8, 4 to 6. I tell you what, we've got pictures in here that I didn't see until I was 16. <laughs> but they are cartoons, and it was so helpful. <laughs> so that's what that's called. So uh, I'm not about to put this on the lobby desk because you'll walk away with it. I've got a lot to learn yet from those books, so... <laughs> <laughs>